last year's Conference of the Parties, the UN's annual climate summit, where global leaders come together to commit to certain actions required to tackle the climate crisis, was held in the United Arab Emirates, one of the world's major oil producers. It was presided over by the president of the country's national oil company. There were many, many stories about the obvious conflicts of interest there, including stories that ran on our website at drilled.media. But another issue that came up, which had come up the year before in Egypt as well, was the limited role that climate activists were allowed to play at this COP. As they were in Egypt, protesters at last year's COP were cordoned off to a special designated area far away from anyone who might be bothered by them. One young protester managed to bust into the main proceedings and make a bit of a fuss, but otherwise protesters were largely unseen. This year's COP will be in another oil state, Azerbaijan. Again, the country's national oil company will be deeply involved. And again, protesters are likely not to be tolerated. Which begs the question, should protection of protest itself be a topic at COP? Can we get real climate action absent real democracy? With all of that going on, it seemed like a good time to bring you this interview that our reporter in France, Anna Pujol-Mazzini, did with Michel Forst, the world's first UN special rapporteur on environmental defenders. It's good timing because Forst released today a scathing report on what he's seeing happen in the UK. If you missed our episode on that, it came out last week. Go and listen to it. The UK has moved really quickly to suppress protest and even to suppress what protesters are allowed to say in their own defense in court. Forced is not having it. We'll link to that report in the show notes. The position was created under something called the Aarhus Convention. It's called that because it was adopted in the Danish city of Aarhus. Its official title is the UN Convention on Access to Information, Public Participation in Decision-Making, and Access to Justice in Environmental Matters. It falls under the United Nations Economic Convention for Europe, and it's been ratified by 48 states, including the European Union. As you'll hear in this interview, Forst points out that because it's a convention, there are actual teeth to it, which makes things kind of interesting. Specifically, this new position of his and the convention that supports it creates a pathway for citizens to voice issues that they have with a development that will affect them. It also requires that they be informed about those developments. So whether it's a building project, a mine, oil drilling, really anything that will materially impact their environment, they need to be informed about it and they need to be able to express their opinions on it. It also says that it's not enough for people to be able to voice their displeasure with a particular project. They also need to have a legal pathway to do something about it. In this interview, Anna asked Forst how that commitment jives with the increased repression of climate protests that we've been seeing around Europe, what he and his office might be able to do about that repression, and how he thinks COP should address the rights of environmental activists. They got into all that and a lot more. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. 
I'm Amy Westervelt, and you're listening to Drilled. After the break, reporter Anna Pujol-Mazzini in conversation with Michelle Forst. Stay with us. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install. You tap a button and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and The Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm gonna be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's gonna be big, really big. If you wanna know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former US Vice President Al Gore, and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new York. 
That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Michel Forst. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, for this interview. So could you start by introducing yourself and telling me a bit more about your role as Special Rapporteur? Yes, so thank you for the invitation. As you know, I've been recently appointed to a new mandate, which has been created by states that are party to the Aarhus Convention, which is a very interesting convention ratified by 48 states, including the EU based on three pillars. The first is access to information, meaning that in any country which is part of the convention, when there is a project that would affect the environment, then those who might be affected should be properly informed by the state in any language that is accessible to the public. The second pillar, which is complementary to the first, is the obligation for states to also consult communities, families, people who are affected by this project, and they would have a right to say anything on the project, including the right to say no. It doesn't mean that they could block the project, but at least they could express themselves and say that they don't agree with the project. And the last pillar, which is very relevant for the time being, is access to justice, access to environmental justice, meaning that people have a right to, to go to court and then to challenge any decision made by the state or the company when it affects their, their environment. So the, the mandate is mostly directed to countries that are party to the Earth Convention. But the beauty of the mandate, if I may say so, is that when it comes to companies that operate abroad, like uh, companies doing extractive industries uh, or anything uh, that, that vein, and they have their headquarters in one of the countries which is part of the World Convention and operate abroad, and then would do harm to defenders abroad, like a company based in Madrid, working on palm oil and working in Peru or Colombia, and then deforesting, affecting communities, indigenous people, then those defenders could have an access to my mandate, and then they would speak not to the state, but to the, uh, the company itself. So we have plenty of cases currently coming to the mandate from Africa, from Latin America, and also from Asia, involving companies that are based in France, in UK, in Switzerland, Norway, other countries. So that's a very new mandate, very interesting. And we need to promote the mandate because most of the defenders, most of the climate activists or environmental defenders don't even know that they are defenders and that there are currently mechanisms that could support them or defend them when they are currently facing threats. And the reason why states have decided to create this new mandate is precisely because they see that in many parts of the world, those who are the most targeted, the most under pressure, are climate activists. And of course, you know the data provided by Global Witness and Frontline Defenders and others. And you see that currently it's only the tip of the iceberg. So you're the first rapporteur for the protection of environmental defenders. And the position was only created 
last year. But as you say, we know that climate and land defenders have been criminalized and even killed for decades. So could you talk a bit more about what prompted the creation of this role at this particular time? As I said precisely, because the states part to the convention have been made aware of the need to, to do more. So there is a strong component on, on prevention in my mandate. And I'm trying to develop with my team, also with the support of lawyers and NGOs, new measures to prevent those attacks to occur. The difference between this mandate and other UN mandate is that while other mandates have been created by a resolution adopted by the Council in Geneva, by the UN Rights Council, this mandate has been created within a legally binding instrument, uh, the convention, which has huge implications in the months to come or year to come. Uh, the fact that there is a mandate created in a legally binding instrument has huge implications for states, but also for companies, because companies that are currently in one of the countries that are party to the convention are also legally binding, uh, binded by this, uh, by this new, new mandate. And so the fact that the mandate is legally binding, what does that give you the tools to do to protect environmental defenders? It gives more, more pressure to, to the mandate. When I'm speaking with ministers, uh, traveling to, to countries, when I'm sending uh, allegation letters to countries, drawing the attention of the fact that defenders are being threatened or uh, under attack, then the fact that the mandate is granted legally reinforces the dialogue with the state because they know that it has it may have implications. Like, for instance, uh, if one state would not fulfill the recommendations expressed by the mandate, then there would be also possibilities for the other parties to the convention to request a withdrawal from the states from the convention, which in terms of international diplomacy have quite a number of implications. Could you imagine UK or France being expelled from one of the most relevant conventions on environment? That would be complicated for them to, uh, to face things. And similarly, the fact that we are currently in Europe adopting new measures, new legally binding instrument, like the new due diligence directive, uh, would also have implications for companies that are based in Europe and state would have the obligations to oversee the behavior of companies operating abroad, like, like Total Energy in France or like companies from UK or from, from other countries operating abroad. So it's, it's to early now to say, but I, I'm, I'm confident that the more we developed together with lawyers, the methods of work, and we will see the results in other of states. Could you maybe give us an overview on what the situation looks like today in the world for environmental defenders and how it's evolved in the past years? Yes, you know that in the past I also had another mandate. I used to be the UN Special Rapporteur on Defenders. And when I started with this mandate, it was in 2014, I invited hundreds of defenders to meet with me in broad consultations in all five continents. And I was struck by the fact that the people that came to me that were the most at risk were precisely environmental defenders. And that's why I decided to develop and to, to present a report in 2016 to the UN Human Council on environmental defenders to just to say to state that's the situation that you are facing and why is it that you don't respond properly to the needs expressed by those defenders. You have created mechanisms, tools to protect them, but nonetheless, you see that there is an increasing number of killings of those defenders. And then... States uh, under the leadership of Norway decided to adopt a new resolution 
on environmental defense, which were added a couple of years later. And it was a way to pave the way for other states and for the EU and for the uh, Lifeline project to create new tools and modalities to protect environmental defense. But nonetheless, we see that the situation is quite quite complicated so now. And that's why having this new mandate, I'm trying to do the same, that is to organize consultations. But uh, broadly, I would say that uh, the situation has not improved. Uh, and it's sort of like, like a, a battle in which you see that uh, the more effective the tools are to protect defenders and the more difficult the situation is becoming because states are developing and companies are developing new, also new, new forms of in-situs attacks against, against environmental defenders and climate activists. So when you're talking about the, the situation getting worse for environmental activists and states and other actors developing new tools, um, could you talk a bit more about what that looks like? Yes, I mean, if you if you read the, the, the reports by Global Witness, they would tell you uh, the data of killings or attacks against defenders is increasing now. It's not diminishing, despite the fact that we have developed new new measures and the new forms of attacks, in-situs attacks have been developed by, by state using different forms of criminalization, campaigns of vilification against climate activists and environmental defenders, and new forms of attacks using like anti-terrorist laws to target those who are simply going to the street to protest against the inaction of states on, on climate. And that's something which... which Unfortunately, it works, in fact. And you see that the reaction of the public to those new forms of mobilizations is not uh, a big support. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you, I, I've heard you talk in other interviews about also the, this sort of battle of narratives and the violence, particularly in France, that's used by the government and the media against environmental activists. So I'm really interested to to get into that a bit more. What would you say is driving this increase in the criminalization of environmental defenders, particularly in Europe, which your mandate mostly covers? Are there special interests or interest groups lobbying for these changes? You know, when I was appointed in the in fact, I started in October 22, I decided to travel to EU countries just to present the mandate because it's not well known and we need to promote the mandate. And I've been invited to quite a number of EU capitals to meet with governments and meeting with ministers, uh, trying to seek support, but also political backing and sometimes funding for the mandate. And at each and every occasion, traveling to those countries, I've been also inviting climate activists and defenders to come to me, to meet with me. I've been asking organizations to set up meetings to discuss the situation in countries, to see what is the, the level of attacks in countries. And I've been impressed by the fact that what came first was civil disobedience and climate activism. In fact, uh, meeting with uh, Greenpeace, uh, meeting with other organizations, Dernier Réservation in France or other countries who have similar organizations, they all came to me saying that we see that currently there is a, a huge pressure on us. The judicial system doesn't respond adequately, properly to our needs. We are sentenced to more and more heavy fines or penalties or prison fines. We are targeted by, by the police and sometimes very violently, like in France, but also in Germany. And we don't see a big support from the media. The media are only reporting on actions taken, but they never 
speak on the causes of the action. That is why we are going to the street to demonstrate. And they only say that we are blocking access to road, putting in danger other peoples, blocking the access to hospitals, which is not true, blocking access to airports. Or... But they don't report properly on why we as climate activists go to the street to claim for a better response from the state. What we see currently and daily, the increasing climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. And that's why I've decided to organize, that was in July, a first meeting inviting 27 climate activists from, from, from 17 countries to meet with me one day. Uh, the idea was to share information and to read different experiences coming from from different countries. I also invited lawyers, their lawyers, to come to the to the meeting and to explain why they have been not able to provide a very effective support to these to these climate activists. And the idea of this first workshop was to prepare a sort of a guidance tool for states to see whether or not we could find a sort of harmonization inside EU countries on how states are responding to the to the new news form of mobilization. Because what we currently see is that what happens in France is different from what happens in Germany or UK or in Norway or Switzerland, which is not part of the EU, but we had someone also from, from Switzerland. And even in countries, we see that uh, the response coming from the uh, judicial system uh, is not uh, the same. If you uh, demonstrate in Paris uh, or in Toulouse or in Bordeaux, then if you are brought to justice, uh, you go to court and you receive different uh, sentences from the court. The same judicial system doesn't have a sort of harmonization of the response to, of, to climate activism. I've also been monitoring trials in courts in different countries to see how the judges would respond to the needs expressed by by the people to explain the causes of the action and to use also the the criminal code in different ways. And to, to be honest, I'm really struck by the fact that the judges don't really respond to the needs. In some countries, like in France or Switzerland, or Germany, or Norway, then you see that judges would decide to, to sentence, but nonetheless to, to lift the sentence, expressing that they have understood the cause and why people have decided to break the law consciously uh, for the cause. But nonetheless, what is not relevant is that uh, in a continent uh, or in a group of countries like the EU, uh, the response coming from, from the judicial system is different, which is not acceptable. In fact, uh, currently, UK and, and Germany are the two countries that are the most difficult for climate activists and those who are using civil disobedience. And it has, in those countries, but also in other countries, uh, a deterrent effect, meaning that people are sentenced to heavy fines uh, and so they would decide not to continue their action. They would decide to withdraw from the organizations. Uh, so it works uh, from the side of the governments. Uh, uh, the more important the fines are, uh, penalties, uh, then uh, the more people would decide to withdraw from organizations uh, and don't uh, would not decide to continue the fight. That's so interesting. I mean, I wonder what has changed at least in Europe in the past few years, to pave the way for that increased criminalization and repression of environmental activists. And I wonder if you're, if you've heard 
of particular political groups or interest groups or sort of companies pushing for that repression in order to protect their interests? Well, in fact, the the reason why we see such an increasing number of forms of mobilization in Europe is that young people are currently the most active and, and see that their future is, is in danger, in fact. And that's why they are going to street to demonstrate and, and using civil disobedience as a mean of action. But on the other side, the reaction from the states is quite is quite different. I don't I don't know, but probably companies would talk to each other. In fact, that's that's clear. And I know that governments are currently also discussing what's happening in their countries, comparing situation, comparing the response from the justice system to those new forms of mobilization. But uh, we don't have concrete uh, elements to uh, to uh, elaborate on this. Uh, we know that uh, uh, some companies are putting pressure in UK uh, on the government. Uh, we know that companies are putting pressure in France, uh, like Total Energy and others, uh, on the government to respond to the uh, attacks uh, coming from those uh, activists uh, to the, against those companies. Uh, but we I, I cannot confirm that uh, there are currently uh, sort of uh, uh, European mobilization uh, from companies or a network of companies uh, that would decide to lobby in Europe, uh, uh, in the EU or at, at national level, at domestic level, uh, against uh, those new 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 activism. What I see is that uh, on the media, you see more countries, uh, people using those new forms of mobilization, blocking the streets, uh, throwing paints in, in museums, or blocking access to, to, to roads. And they see that it draws the attention of the public and the media. But at the same time, they complain that the media do not report properly adequately. They don't explain the causes. So it's sort of a, a battle which is ongoing in, in countries in Europe. And we need to monitor, and that's the role that the mandate has to monitor the situation and then to report back to states and to provide guidance to states to better respond. In my workshop in, in Paris in July, I also invited a few activists coming from outside the EU to see whether or not it's limited in, in the EU. And in fact, we have people coming from Georgia, for instance, or from Serbia, which are not party to the EU, but close to the EU. And those countries will tell us that it's not the case in their countries, in fact. So currently, that's uh, very limited to EU countries, in fact. So we need to understand why. So when you say this is this seems to be limited to EU countries, is that the civil disobedience techniques or is that the sort of repressive strategies used by states? Or both? Both, because, the, yeah, of course, the um, I mean, using uh, civil disobedience uh, is a form of action that is used mostly in EU countries. Uh, while in Denmark, for instance, I was struck by the fact that traveling to Denmark, having organized a meeting with climate activists in, in Denmark, the first thing that they asked me, that was to leave my, my computer and my telephone outside of the room, uh, because they say we are under surveillance and we are taped, in fact. Uh, and that's the first time uh, for many years, uh, that I haven't seen that in Europe. In fact, people asking me to put my telephone uh, outside of the room. And when they came to Paris, to my meeting, they say the same. So we decided to leave all telephones outside of the room. Wow. And so I find it so interesting, Norway being a country which is also seeing a lot of climate activism and a lot of civil disobedience, but not as heavy-handed a response to it. Would you say that's currently 
the country that's best respecting the rights of environmental defenders within your mandate? I, w- I would say yes, but it needs to be confirmed. It, it was only uh, a workshop. Uh, I've also been traveling to Norway to also meet with them. And uh, I was struck by the fact that uh, the situation is quite different from other countries in the EU. But uh, that seems to be to be confirmed by uh, a more comprehensive analysis. Huh? And that's why I also have uh, requested the uh, Fundamental Rights Agency, the FRA, based in Vienna, they are doing studies to study the legal systems in many countries. And then they are also uh, doing interviews with beneficiaries to see whether or not the law is respected in countries. So current from would also be looking at the current state of legislation in EU countries on civil disobedience to see whether there was a need to harmonize legislations. This is interesting because it's one of the agencies that reports to the EU, to the Council, to the Commission, and to the Parliament, in fact. And the role is to guide also the EU institutions on how to put pressure on states to better respect the Charter, in fact. So a study coming from the FRA would also be a way to complement my own empiric analysis of the situation, a more scientific observation of what's happening in EU countries. So since your office was created almost a year ago now, what are some of the complaints that you've received? Do you have sort of figures? Do you have examples of of the complaints people come to you with? The the practice is that uh, with UN Special Rapporteurs, the uh, communications are kept confidential until they they become public, in fact. Uh, So when I receive a a complaint or a communication coming from, from a defender, then I'm discussing with the side, with the staff, who are looking to receiving uh, additional information, we double check information to make sure that we are not manipulated and that the mandate is relevant. And then we are, when we are sure that the complaint is relevant for the mandate, then we send a communication, official communication to the state. And state have 60 days to reply to my communication in writing. And then my uh, communication and the response of the state uh, becomes public on the website. So if you go to the website of, of my mandate, you will see a few uh, public communications. The idea of those communications is to prevent other attacks to occur. That is, if we deal with an attack, then the state uh, have a duty not to uh, to duplicate or to repeat the attacks to the, to, the, to communities. So the idea is to, to make sure that those communications will, will be a way to prevent attacks. So just have a look. I will send you the link to, to those communications. Huh? So currently, we're receiving communication coming from climate activists, complaining that they have been arrested, brought to justice, that the uh, justice system doesn't fulfill the international obligation of the state, that state have ratified convention that they don't respect. We see also receiving a communication coming from defenders in Latin America, having been attacked by companies based in one of the countries that is party to the Arles Convention. So we are currently, uh, yes, discussing with states, discussing with companies on how we should follow up on those communications to make sure that things would not happen and not be worse for, for defenders. So different types of communications. We have also cases like in, in, in the Balkans or uh, Central Asia, of uh, broad, communicate, broad communities uh, claiming that their rights uh, to uh, to be properly consulted or to be heard has not been uh, respected by the state. And uh, when it's come to big projects like megadams, uh, we have a case of a megadam in one country in Central Asia, and then communities have been affected. So it's more a sort of a more broad uh, communication coming from a group of defenders rather than a communication coming from one uh, single individual. For 
the people who will be listening to the podcast, what are some of the cases that you're now allowed to talk about? I would have uh, a few cases of, of climate activists, for instance, um, like the ones in France. Uh, there was a case of a, of a journalist who had been accused of taking part to an action and then being assimilated to people who were using civil disobedience was he was a journalist and then he was arrested by the police and and then after my letter was sent to the government then the government decided to lift the charges against him so that's one of the cases huh? there's a, a big question i think surrounding the impact that your office can have and as you say you can work with countries that have signed the convention or when companies that are headquarters in countries that have signed the convention work in other countries. So since the brunt of the violence occurs in countries outside of Europe and especially against indigenous communities, and since the US and Canada, which are home to a lot of ecocidal multinationals, are part of, not part of the convention, how... Can your office ensure the protection of these environmental defenders? And so what can you do, if anything, with regards to nations that are not part of the convention or with regards to multinational companies? That's precisely one of the limitation of the mandate, in fact. Huh? When companies based in, in, in Canada or in China or in Russia or in the U.S., and are doing harm to, to defenders, to communities, to indigenous people, I can do nothing. When I receive a complaint coming from them, because they think that my mandate would be relevant, then I'm simply forwarding to my the, the communication to other mandate holders, and we have a, a good level of communication with other reporters. I would also report and will forward the information to the Secretary of the Escazu Agreement, which is similar to the Arab Convention, but relevant for the Americas. I would also decide to forward the information received to the African reporter on, on defenders. So we have a network of defenders. And if I'm not able to take a case, then I would refer back the case to other reporters. And similarly, some of them uh, would decide to put pressure on states to do joint communication with me. And I could also decide to do a joint communication to a state with the Commission for Emergency of the Council. And she also, at many occasions, refers cases to me because she's traveling a lot to countries inside the Council of Europe. And when she sees that she's approached by communities or defenders, then she says, there is a mandate which is relevant to you and I will refer the case to, to you. And then the staff are communicating on the case. Did you talk very quickly about the difference between the Aris Convention and the Escazio Agreement. Both are international agreements. They are based on the same pillars, the three pillars, access to information, public participation, access to environmental justice. So we have the same grounds, in fact, the main basis. But the main difference is that the Aris Convention is a universal convention, meaning that all states outside of Europe could also ratify the convention, which is the case for one country in Africa, Guinea-Bissau, has decided to join the Oslo Convention. We are currently also discussing with other countries in Africa to join the, the convention. While the Escazú Agreement is a regional agreement, only for for Latin America or for the Americas as a whole, in fact. And the, the other difference is that although the two agreements and conventions uh, have also a strong component on the protection of defenders. Uh, the Arts Convention has decided to establish a mandate of a social rapporteur, while it's not the case for the Escazú Agreement. 
And currently, uh, we are discussing with the Escazú Agreement Secretariat, which is based in Chile. Uh, they monitor the way this mandate is effective or not, and then they may also decide to establish a, a regional mandate under the Escazú Agreement to also promote and protect defenders in, in the region. So that's more or less the, the main difference, but we are working, in fact, very closely together. Mm. You've talked a bit about the climate activist tactics of civil disobedience in the Europe region. And so I think a big, big question is the question of nonviolence, right? So according to the convention, environmental defenders are only protected if they are nonviolent. But given the climate emergency and the lack of impact that peaceful protests have had in the past decades, we can see that the methods of environmental activists are evolving to sometimes include sabotage and material destruction. We're also increasingly seeing states and the media portray these activists as violent and da dangerous, even in cases where that's not true. So how, how do you ensure those activists are protected and what level of material violence is considered legitimate? How do you handle the increasing use of sabotage as a necessary strategy to stop ecocidal projects? Yes, you're right. And the question of violence is at the heart of the mandate uh, to the, with the UN, in fact. And that's, that's a question which has been debated since decades by the UN and by, by member states. And you know that in uh, 1998, uh, states at the UN have decided to adopt uh, a UN declaration on human defenders. And precisely, the, the, the clause of violence was very largely discussed by states when adopting this declaration and can only be recognized as a defender someone who is not using violence. And uh, in my past mandate, I've been uh, at many occasions confronted by the decision, uh, is that violence or not? And it's, a, it's a each time an ad hoc decision, a case-by-case -case decision. And for me, since uh, I've been working on Defenders for so many years, together with the staff, with the staff we have adopted a, a clear uh, definition of, of, the, of violence. Violence uh, cannot be against uh, persons or against individuals. Like, for instance, if you go to a rally or demonstration in the streets, you are throwing stones to police officers. That's for me violence. Those people are excluded from protection. They are throwing a bunch of cocktails to buildings. or, or That's for me violence. I, I could not recognize. I mean, I, I don't challenge the, the legitimacy of the cause, but they are not recognized by me as being human defenders. Someone who is responding to the, to the violence by the police, that's something which is different. If you are in a demonstration and you are all of a sudden surrounded by police officers that would decide to beat you, Uh, violently, and you would defend yourself, in fact, kick the knee of the police or, uh, yeah, defending yourself, that for me is not violence, in fact. Uh, that's self-defense, uh, and those people could be recognized as being defenders. Um, so that's the limitation in terms of physical violence, in fact. Uh. When it comes to violence to property, also a very different approach. Um, Uh, I would not I would not take as defender someone who is deliberately using sabotage as a form of action. For me, that's, that's clearly uh, a limitation, but which is something really complicated to describe. Uh, that's, that's private property. 
if he would break the door of a private property to to do uh, a civil disobedience activity, then for me that would not be violence. In fact, that would be a way to simply open the door to in a symbolic place doing an action which is which will respond to the definition of civil disobedience. So trespassing or breaking down a door to get to private property to protest against a project in a symbolic way is not considered violence, but... Because you are not destroying, in fact, you are not destroying, the, 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 you are trespassing, in fact, you are, in fact, destroying yeah. the, the door, maybe, mm. or the barrier, but then you enter a field or a, a place in which you decide to uh, publicly use, using a, a civil disobedience, mm. but it's not, it's, not, it's not violence for me. While destroying a property, like destroying a bassin, like in France, that's that for me is not. I mean, I would not say it's not acceptable, but those people could not be recognized as being uh, defenders. In fact, huh? okay. So in in this particular case, so if you're mentioning the the mega basins and the water defenders in France, so those activists who purposely decide to sabotage the installation of a basin, that's they don't come under your mandate. No. Okay. Clearly no. no. How do you come to that conclusion? Is that something that you're sort of still thinking about and that could be evolving at some point given the lack of climate action through peaceful means like is is sabotage always out of question uh, as uh, as i said we are monitoring uh, on a case by case uh, uh, discussion with the staff but for the time being uh, what we call sabotage is something which is not uh, permitted under the mandate in that i would not i would not admit but of course we could we could further discuss with, with the staff we will see the forms of action the new forms of action taken by activists but for me that's clearly currently a strong barrier and i don't want to currently enter in a discussion with with those groups to discuss uh, the validity or legitimacy of sabotage that would be too complicated for me. I need to be careful because that's a new mandate, in fact. So I don't want to hamper the development of the mandate by taking to prematurely decisions that would then have an impact and the state would decide to abolish the mandate because they would see that I'm going too far and then I'm also boundaries, in fact. The boundaries mm. are created by the resolution that creates my mandate uh, in 2021 when the mandate was created. Yeah. So my, my, my role is to explore if I may say so, the boundaries of the data, but mm. not to overlap the boundaries, in fact. So yeah. exploring uh, means also being able to expand progressively the boundaries. Uh, but uh, if I'm going too, too fast yeah. and uh, I see the danger, that state would decide, oh, it's too dangerous. Then we abolish the data, which would be uh, yeah, a disaster for climate activists, in fact. Huh? It's probably a question that you're dealing with on a near daily basis, which would yes. be like, how can I include as many environmental activists as I can to protect as many of them without antagonizing states and multinational companies who might be putting pressure on states and make my mandate 
irrelevant, right? Yeah. So if you take the case in France that we described, the case, the case of the journalist, you know the case, in fact, there was a group of other activists that enter, I don't know the English term, where they, where they store grains. A they, grain silo. Yeah, they, they broke the door, they entered the building, and they opened a sack of grain, and mm-hmm. the grain, I mean, came to the floor, but nothing, nothing, I mean, they did not destroy. It wasn't a sabotage. In fact, they simply wanted to show that those grains are genetic grains, dangerous for the future. And that's what they did, in fact. Simply that. They did not decide to burn their grains, but simply to open the, the, the sack to show what, what was, in fact, the purpose of the action. And for, for me, the breaking the door, opening the sack was not, for me, violence, in fact. It was a way for them to, uh, to express their form of action. In fact. Okay. Even though that could technically be considered, you know, material destruction. Yeah, and the company uh, was decided to 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 sue the activist precisely because they say that uh, it was destruction of private property. But if I would go, if I had been invited to the court, I would have explained uh, what is civil disobedience. And my concern is that, in fact, uh, the courts do not really understand what is civil disobedience. Mm. What are the what are the tactics being used against environmental defenders? I I heard you mention in, in an interview with French media Blast that police forces seem to be copying one another's methods in dealing with climate protest. Could you expand on that? Yes, I mean, that's again, that's something which is empathic. In fact, I don't have evidences on this. Huh? But when I see simply the images on TV, of police forces using the same techniques that are working in one country and then copy-pasted in other countries, I see that, in fact, there is a discussion with the police. France is the country which had the, the most violent response by the police compared to other countries in Europe. But if you see, remember what they call in, in Germany this penguin handgriff, in fact. Okay, that's, that's when police officers twist the wrist of activists? Like, like the penguins, in fact. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so they twist the arm. It's very painful, in fact. For me, it amounts to torture, in fact. That's very dangerous and very effective because people, the young people who are drawn by the police outside the demonstration say it's too dangerous, it's too, too painful to me. I would not do that again, in fact. So the punishment is, is effective, in fact. And it has been developed in Germany. And then you see that in other countries, they are using the same technique, to simply take people out of the street where they block access to airports using the same technique. So I would say that there is a form of not duplication, but police officers know pretty well what is working in other countries. Fortunately, they don't copy-paste what's happening in France, in fact, because that would be too dangerous for other EU countries, in fact. Using tear gas, beating, beating violently innocent people who are simply not even taking part to demonstration, but simply being in the street and like tourists or simply observing a demonstration. That's something which is, for me, horrendous. What we're seeing now in our reporting is that Climate activists have always been targeted for, you know, decades. They've been targeted by states and interest groups and companies. Um, every time they've tried to, um, every time they've tried to stop or prevent more climate damage. But what we seem to be seeing now is that a lot of Western countries that are considered democracies are also clamping down on climate activism and. 
I'm wondering to what extent do you think that clampdowns on climate activism in Western countries give license to people seeking to restrict environmental activism in places with histories of human rights abuse and horror systems of accountability. Yeah, that's for me one of the uh, biggest problems that we have to face with the French government. In fact, the problem is the coherence between international action of the French government and what's happening at domestic level, in fact. Huh? We see that France and the, the development, AFD, uh, are putting huge money to support activists and defenders and, and civic space in many countries, asking their embassies in countries also to invite defenders and, and activists to, to meet with them. They provide funding also to activists to, to groups in those countries. But at the same time, at domestic level, they are treating people who are going to the street uh, in a very violent way. So it's not, in fact, coherent. And I see that speaking to other governments uh, in Africa or Latin America, then when they discuss with the, the embassies, they sometimes refer to the fact that look at the picture that we are seeing in our TVs on how you respond to demonstration in your country. Why are you criticizing us, in fact? Huh? And that's something which has also an impact uh, on the image of a country like France uh, at uh, international mm -hmm. level. And that's also explain why in some countries we see uh, a stronger resistance, a strong reaction against, against France. And I'm also looking at how Putin or other dictators are also referring to a situation in France to simply say what's happening in our country is not different from what's happening in France. So you see that it has also an impact. And I remember putting also with a, with a smile, discussing with, with Macron on the fact that when the yellow vests were demonstrating in France, I was saying, look at us, how you respond and are you criticizing us? In fact, of course, they are not killing a defense in France. But at the same time, they are using also very severe forms of violence. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fascinating and terrifying at the same time. I remember I had uh, in the past uh, a discussion with a French ambassador to Honduras. I don't want to, to to give the name or the period, in fact, but it was when I was in my mandate between 2014 and 2020, in fact, uh, traveling to Honduras uh, and discussing with the ambassador. That is likely what he said, in fact. Uh, it, at the time, there was a very violent demonstration in Honduras. And uh, when he tried to explain to the Minister of Interior, Home Affairs, that sometimes the police should behave differently, then immediately there was a response from the minister to the ambassador saying, eh, guy, look at what's happening in France. Wow. Yeah, that had to hurt. <laughs> so on the repression, and and again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking particularly about what happened in France after Sansoline, your your statements on the use of force by police have been very strong worded. I was, in fact, surprised by how strong worded they were for an office linked to the UN. And how how effective do you think the condemnation of UN bodies and special rapporteurs can really be in thwarting injustice? How much of a deterrent can it can it really be if if there's no sort of enforcement mechanisms or actual punishment to go with it? First, I would, I would say that my reaction was very strong, but I was not the only one having this reaction coming from international organizations. 
we had a, a similar reaction coming from the Commission for Human Rights of the Council of Europe, also condemning Paris violence, the response of the police. You also had a, a statement by the new UN High Commissioner for Human Rights on France at the opening of one of the sessions of the Council, using the same strong words against, not, not against, but to, to point out the fact that France was one of the countries which is currently the most violent against people who are trying to demonstrate. So we are, I mean, I was not alone. It was uh, like we had discussions uh, with the UN on how to react, uh, and other reporters also sent a formal communication to France, a group of reporters, which is public also, condemning the violent response by the police of demonstrations in saint soline So it was like a, a sort of a joint action by different organizations to put pressure on France. So you could say that it doesn't work, in fact. You, I mean, if you read the response by, by the French minister of interior, Damana, saying that this guy commenting police violence from his office in New York while I'm based in Paris, in fact, and it's a yeah, sort of show-off position saying we don't care what the UN is saying, in fact. But when you speak with the internal system, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with the Ministry of Justice, you see that is an impact, in fact, because they know that at the end of the day, some France will be called before the UN at different occasions. For instance, you know this, what we call the Universal Periodic Review. It's a new, a new mechanism at the UN by which all states have to come to the UN and to explain the situation of human rights in the country, and then they receive communication recommendations coming from other states. And France, every four years, has also to, to respond to questions coming from, 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 from other countries on what's happening in France. So it has an impact because they, they don't want to, to hear strong condemnation coming from other states because it has an impact also on the reputation of France. So I'm sure that publicly, again, that's the response of the minister, but at the same time, uh, instructions have been given to ambassadors uh, to monitor what's happening at the UN to prepare the next time, the next phase uh, of France examination before the UN was concerned. So I'm sure it has an impact. I'm not able to measure uh, the level of the, uh, the impact, but I'm sure that it has a positive impact. Some public statements from the UN and from the Council of Europe uh, on France uh, have an impact because France is one of the five countries uh, members of the Security Council of the UN. So they have also a duty and obligation to be coherent, which is not the case so far, but they have an obligation to do that. Mm. Okay, let's talk about the situation in France in more detail. So can you tell me from your perspective what the situation has looked like in France recently when it comes to the rights and the protection of environmental defenders? I would say two Two different situations like that. At the level of the Autos Convention, in addition to the mandate of special reporter, you also what we call the Compliance Committee. The Compliance Committee is there to look at how France would comply with the, all the provisions of the Convention. And anyone has the possibility to put a complaint before the Compliance Committee. It's more broadly on lack of access to information or lack of public participation. And currently, if you look at the website, uh, of the uh, Compliance Committee, uh, you would see that uh, there are currently uh, complaints uh, uh, being put forward by uh, groups like uh, France Nature Environnement or by Greenpeace or by others, uh, La Fondation Daniel Mitterrand and others, 
again, the fact that France would not comply with all provisions of the uh, Oslo Convention. So that's for the broader approach on what, how France is approaching environmental defenders in, in France. It's not individual cases, but it, could, it gives you a good, a good idea on what's happening at the level of the compliance with the main provision of the Convention. Now to come to, 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 to activists and to defenders themselves, that is individuals or group of individuals, I mean, since I've been appointed, I've been approached by many groups, in fact, in different places in France, from, from Brittany to Toulouse in the south of France, from the north of France to Strasbourg, on different topics related to environmental uh, situations or, or, or climate activists, in fact, people who are demonstrating against a new installation or a new project, uh, up to people who are simply trying to block an access to airports or to, to roads because they want to, to publicly express their, their opinion on the inaction of the government on, on climate. So different types of situations. And what I've been seeing and sometimes monitoring myself, because I've been also traveling to meet with them and to see situations, monitoring demonstrations, monitoring trials in court also, that the situation is not is not improving currently. And as we said from the beginning, the uh, sometimes uh, concerted campaigns of vilification by public officials have also a great impact, uh, which is very unfortunate on the public opinion when you have a minister and then a prime minister and then public officials and members of parliament calling those people eco-terrorists or simply terrorists or comparing them to Taliban's or, or to uh, violent actions, then it's not only uh, people who are under pressure but the cause for which they are fighting. Which, I mean, we, we'll have a poll on this uh, in, in the coming months to see the impact of public vilification by public officials uh, on the way the, the the French opinion might be manipulated on, on on climate, but it has clearly an impact on the way the population is perceiving those forms of, of activism. So the situation is not for me a model in France from the response of the police, which is one of the most violent in Europe. And the response of the uh, judicial system, which is not coherent at all, we have we have uh, an issue in France uh, with climate activism and civil disobedience. And in that in that way, I mean, you talk you talked about climate activists being stigmatized by the media and also by by ministers and our police force using a disproportionate amount of force on protesters. Is there a French exception? in that way when it comes to the repression of climate activism? How does it compare to other countries in Europe? I mean, when it's come to campaigns of vilification or criminalization, that's not only in France. In fact, you have the same level of, if you if you look at Germany, I was also in Austria in a sort of official visit and, and I heard one of the ministers in Austria use also the word eco-terrorist to qualify people who are simply going to the street, people who were at the time throwing paints on a monument, in fact, in Austria. But you see that in UK, that's the same. In Spain, you have the same. In Italy, you have the same. In, in all EU countries, those campaigns of stigmatization and vilification are also, yeah, at the same, same level, in fact. Huh? The main difference in France is the response of the police. But in terms of the way uh, politicians are perceiving uh, climate activists, we have the same, the same problem in all countries, ex- with the exception of Norway, again, which is not EU, but a big country in, in Europe. What, what's different about how the police responds to climate activism in France? What sets them apart? 
I mean, simply the, the level of violence. The level of violence was not the case in the UK, uh, where they have a, a strong tradition of, of not being so violent, not using the same the same methods. In Germany, that's the case, despite the fact that in the past, the German police has been very violent, but nowadays it's different. They are, in fact, using, as, as we say, these new forms of violence against the demonstration, using this handgriff, as I said, but you don't have strong tear gas or beatings by the police using also bullets against against people who are demonstrating, which is unique in France and not a model for other countries. What do you think explains that? What? Why is the French police more violent than its neighbors? It was interesting to to hear uh, specialists discussing the difference between the French police and other police, in fact. And uh, in the past, there has been a, a group established by the EU inviting uh, police officers to come together to discuss methods of work, reaction to different forms of demonstration. And France decided not to participate uh, to this group of discussion, simply because they said that we have our own procedures and way of doing it, and we don't want to learn from others. So they simply refused to discuss with others, um, while others uh, coming together decided to adopt new modalities of action and to take the best from uh, from, from the best uh, of the police officers in other countries. And France was different, decided not to, to, to take part into those discussions. I don't have the name of the group of discussion, but uh, if you look in, into Google, you would sign this. this. And uh, if you listen to uh, specialists of the police in France, they will also explain that uh, where situation by which uh, France would decide to go alone, saying we have own efficient tradition okay wow and in terms of so you're saying they're also quite unique in the amount and the strength of the weapons they're using against protesters right like rubber bullets like grenades de désencerclement like yes mm -hmm. yeah tools uh, that they are using uh, which are not used at all by by other governments uh, and those methods are used uh, in countries uh, in Africa, sometimes in Latin America, using uh, sometimes uh, little weapons to target demonstrate. But uh, yeah, that's that's unique uh, in Europe, and uh, which is for not only for me but for the UN a great matter of concern. Mm. I'd like to go back to October 2022. So you've just sort of started as. UN Special Rapporteur on Environmental Defenders, there's a first major protest against water basins in Saint-Soline, and our Interior Minister, Gérald Darmanin, labels climate activists eco-terrorists. How do you feel? I mean, I feel I feel not well at all because I I still had with me the image of what is terrorism, in fact, huh? emails of, of, of people who have been brutally killed in France by, by terrorists and comparing people who are simply and non-violently going to the street to demonstrate for a better future for our planet to terrorists, that for me, difficult to understand. And yeah, that's, that's a pity that, I mean, as we say in France, a minister should not say that. Right. I mean, especially you're, as a French person as well, sort of having, you know, that, that memory of 2015 and actual terrorism being exactly yeah. yeah yeah same same when i hear when i hear other ministers of other countries uh, compare them to to talibans uh, 
And if you look at the situation of Taliban's in Afghanistan and how they treat uh, women and other uh, people, I mean, I mean, what, what does it mean to compare climate activists to to Taliban's? Or, or even because I'm not young, I'm not young, but I've also heard ministers in other countries compare them to to green Khmers, like in Cambodia, and uh, Cambodia that's a genocide, huh? two million people being being killed by the government, huh? and comparing and comparing innocent people simply going to the streets non-violently to green Khmers, that's difficult to I mean rationally to understand why someone educated at the level of a minister could go public with those statements. Uh, I mean, that's that's simply not easy to understand for me and for others, in fact. Mm. And so sticking to that topic of defamation campaigns, you you mentioned in another interview that as a UN Special Rapporteur, you were particularly targeted by French politicians for, I think it was probably denouncing what had happened in Saint-Soline, but that people were sort of calling into question your office. Yeah, I was I was not targeted. I was simply mocked by, by, by a minister and by others saying, saying by that, why is it that this guy based in New York would comment uh, simply on the basis of videos uh, what's happening in Saint-Soline? But it was not really a campaign of defamation or campaign against me. In fact, simply a minister mocking me. While at the same time, he was not there as well. He was not. He was in his office. This minister also looking at videos of what's happening in Saint-Soline. So he also commented from from his office while he was commenting from my my office. In fact, so just to compare. Is that? A first for you as a UN special rapporteur being mocked by a government minister? I mean, that seems... No. no. Okay. Because that seems like quite a great length to go to to discredit the UN. No, that's that's a, that's a, I would not say a common practice, but I've been also in, in the past, but in other countries, in fact, like for instance, the case of Azerbaijan, doing an official visit to Azerbaijan, but it's interesting to compare Azerbaijan to France. In fact, the vice president of Azerbaijan saying that Mr. Ford should be of Armenian origin because he was so violent against our country. And uh, of course, I'm not at all Armenian, but hearing a vice president trying to defame me by, by I mean, that's yeah, but interesting to compare reaction by Azerbaijan and reaction by by a French minister, in fact. Huh? We're the same, the same in Colombia, Honduras, Peru, and that's when you are going public on what's happening in the country as a, as a UN official, I mean, you are used to, to receive that sort of response. Uh, yeah. After the water protests at Saint-Soline, you and other officials came together to say that the the response of the state and the police had been largely disproportionate. How how did you come to that conclusion? And can you tell me a bit more about what happened at Saint-Soline from your perspective? Yes, simply. I mean, I decided to interview witnesses, eyewitnesses, and journalists, but also people who were there. I had a, a meeting with members of the EU Parliament that were in Santorini, also to discuss with them what's happening. I also looked at, at many videos from from the media on the, on the response of the police on the violence. And when I decided to comment and say that it was disproportionate, it was based on my interviews and my monitoring of, of videos. Uh, and I remember very well one of the videos showing a, a high-rank uh, official, uh, a gendarme français, 
looking from the from the from the hill, saying they have thrown tear gas to the wrong part of the demonstration, while people who were targeted were not the people who were violent. But, I mean, it was it was yeah, not well prepared. And, I've heard you speak about the FNSEA before and sort of also their actions to uh, impede uh, freedom of speech of climate activists. Can you talk a bit about the political and corporate interests that you're seeing behind the violence against climate activists in France? Yes. What, what I meant raising the situation of the FNSO in France is that it's, it's difficult to understand when you compare two, diff, I mean, two types of action using the same methods to see that climate activists would be immediately put in question by the police or by the justice system being brought to justice. While when it comes to big interests like the FNSUA, close to the big farmers in France, everything they do, even they, I mean, there's no consequences at all. When when the FNSUA, so which is the the largest sort of one of the largest unions of farmers in France, and sort of which is also protecting the interests of commercial and huge agriculture, agribusiness. And they've conducted quite a lot of, I mean, they've been linked to a lot of actions in France of like attack against climate activists and journalists. But also attacks against against public buildings. In fact, I would not say that in, I could not say that in English, but they... Uh... <laughs> yeah, like uh, launching, like sort of sending like, House of compounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Launching parts of compounds before public officials or before public buildings, uh, and uh, no consequences at all. Uh, the, the the municipality that, that would clean the building uh, would clean the streets, uh, and no consequences at all for these demonstrations. While other activists using less severe forms of action would be immediately arrested by the police and brought to justice. So the different type of comparison, I mean, that's that's something which is striking in a country like France. I could not say that from other countries because I would be able to monitor that in other countries. But in France, that's the case. Strong commercial interest uh, also have, a, have an impact on the way the French um, officials are reacting to the mobilization of climate activism. I mean, uh, because because they they see that in the case of the mega bassins, if the, the the system would not allow any more mega bassins to be to be uh, constructed or built, uh, then it was an impact on, on the agriculture in France. Just a last question: We you mentioned COP at the beginning of this interview. Do you expect the persecution of climate protesters to come up at COP or? Do you plan to push for that to happen? I mean, we, I mean, we don't expect during the COP climate activists to be to be punished or be to be persecuted. What we expect is that many of them would not be allowed to travel to Dubai for obvious reasons. It was also the case in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt uh, the last time, so that's one of the first. But the main concern that uh, I have, together with the group of NGOs, is that climate action uh, is not only a matter for governments, uh, and it should be also a matter of discussion uh, with the population, and especially those who are affected by uh, by climate uh, by climate change. And uh, although we see that in many countries uh, in Europe, uh, organizations are invited to discuss with the government uh, on the negotiation or coming to, to uh, during the COP, it's not the case for, for many countries, in fact. Uh, and 
uh, what we want to to achieve is a better understanding on why is it important for all governments uh, to invite uh, to the table those who are affected by uh, climate change. And uh, not only to invite them to be part of formally the delegation and to have one or two of them as a sort of alibi in the delegation, but to discuss more in detail the outcome document prior to the conference and then after the conference when it comes to the implication and the uh, inaction in, in the countries. Yeah. I mean, to, I guess to to come back to the, the protection of environmental defenders, in what ways could these international climate negotiations be leveraged for the protection of protest? I mean, we know that this is always mentioned at COP, but will you push for some sort of like official inclusion in commitments, for example, particularly in the context of the UAE hosting the COP? Yes, since since the Paris Agreement, we see that climate defenders and environmental defenders are mentioned in the outcome documents. They are simply mentioned in the first part of the document. But the, in the operative part, which contains decisions by the COP, they are never in fact mentioned. In fact. So what we need to achieve is more concrete commitments by states, not only to include strong wording on defenders in the outcome documents, but concrete commitments by states to do more on defenders. Because we see, and that's how we started the interview, that in so many countries, they are the most at risk. And in the context of the COP meetings, that's the place where those things have to be discussed, but not only discussed, but also concretely, discussions should lead to concrete decisions by states to better protect defenders, but also to, to prevent the attacks, in fact, to occur in countries. So we are working together with a group of NGOs on different options, possibilities to achieve that goal. Yeah, so that's something that you're going to push at the, at the next negotiations? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking all of that time to speak to me. I know that was a long interview, but there are so many things to talk about. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to say? Maybe I just would like to maybe to briefly comment on my definition of, of civil disobedience, which is something that I'm trying to promote when I'm monitoring a trial in France or a monitoring a trial in Germany. In fact, so that judges will understand that civil disobedience, in fact, is covered by international uh, human rights law. And they sometimes ignore that this is the case. You have clearly a definition, <clears throat> but clearly a statement by the Human Rights Committee, the UN Human Rights Committee, commenting on public demonstration uh, and saying that civil disobedience is covered by Article 21 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And for me, civil disobedience responds to four uh, criteria, in fact. Huh? It should be... Um, First, uh, public. Uh, it's not be uh, in one apartment or a flat. It should be public uh, just to show that uh, there's a cause behind. The second element is that the um, people who are participating to, uh, uh, to civil disobedience activities uh, should understand that they're breaking the law. They are prepared to face uh, a trial before uh, the justice system. The third element, it should be non-violent. And we have uh, largely discussed uh, my uh, approach to, uh, to violence. 
And the last element, it should be to fight for uh, a cause, that is to abolish a law, to abolish a practice, to abolish a civil a sort of a public policy, which is, might be dangerous or contrary to human rights standards. And when those four elements are contained in an action of civil disobedience, for me, they, are, they should not be punished by the law. But the justice system should understand that it's covered by international human rights law, and that's not the case currently, and that's a pity. It for this time. Big thanks to Anna for bringing us this interview. She'll be back soon with an episode on how climate protest is being repressed in France. So stay tuned for that. Drilled is an original critical frequency production. This episode was written and reported by Anna Pujol Mazzini. Our senior editor for this season is Aline Brown. Our senior producer is Martin Zaltz Ostwick, who also does our sound design, mixing and mastering by Peter Duff. Wu Dan Yan is our fact checker. Our artwork is by Matt Fleming. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton. The show was created by me, Amy Westervelt. You can find related videos, photos, and print stories for this series, along with all of the documentation we have to go along with it at drilled.media. You can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter. We round up the top five stories on climate that you should be reading each week and include some analysis of various trends. It never takes more than 10 minutes to read and people tell us it helps them stay on top of climate info without getting overwhelmed by the fire hose of stories. You can also find us on Twitter at We Are Drilled and on LinkedIn under Drilled Media. If you'd like to support the podcast, leaving us a rating or a review actually really helps us find new listeners. You can also support us financially by becoming a subscriber, either to the newsletter or to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Patreon. Paid subscribers get access to ad-free episodes, early release episodes, and bonus content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.